too dark for you to lose. These tools are for you to do. Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I am the host of the show. I am the creator of the show. I am the editor of the show. I am everything but the guest on the show. It, that's not exactly true. I do have an associate producer now who was instrumental in helping me plan this episode and the next series of episode episode next series of episodes. So shout out to new associate producer Sam Wellbell and my guest this week is Joanna Isaacson. I got in touch with Joanna because here's the here's the backstory. We're doing a new thing this month, October 2022. Hopefully this is this is an evergreen listen, but to timestamp for folks who know so you can get some of the context. It is October 2022. And I am into horror movies all of a sudden. I read Everything for Everyone, the book written by my guests a couple episodes ago, Emmy O'Brien and Eman Abdelhadi. And then I got into the Purge movies, which I wrote about in my newsletter, Definitive Answers. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And now I'm full in on horror movies. I am not into all of them indiscriminately, but I'm very excited about the possibilities of horror as a genre. So I, I won't, I won't, I'll skip some of the steps here, but I figured why not make October 2022 the month where each week I talk to a guest about a horror movie and the overlaps between horror movies and the kind of stuff I normally talk about on This Is Your Afterlife, which I should say, I was in a coma eight years ago. I actually went into the coma in October, came out in November, was almost taken off life support, eulogized on Facebook during that time, but woke up and still had a lot of questions. So hence this podcast. That is normally the structure of the show. We talk about life the meaning of life, we talk about funerals, we talk about memory, transformation, and I am going to talk to Joanna about all these things because she is going to be the only new guest this month. The other guests are going to be returning guests, and I figured I don't want to have a new guest on and not give them the full treatment, not give you, the listener, the opportunity to get to know her, and but so who she is, she is a cultural critic, a horror aficionado, a horror critic, and she's also a college professor. She is the founding editor of Blind Field Journal, and she has just written a book through the same publisher as Everything for Everyone called Stepford Daughters, Weapons for Feminists in Contemporary Horror. I got a chance to read some of it. I especially read the parts, as you'll hear, um, the parts about The Babadook, which is the movie that we are going to talk about after her traditional interview. So this is a bit of a longer episode. 
about an hour-ish in is when we switch to Baba Duke talk. So if you if you already know Joanna and you're not interested in hearing anything else about her life, which like r- rude, you know, like, give give yourself the the pleasure of getting to know Joanna a little bit better, even if you already do know her. But about an hour in is when our Baba Duke talk starts. So also, if you're looking to pause in the middle, that's totally fine. Just know that like she doesn't give a, a giant long answer to the unwritten rules at the end of the show or something. Uh, it's 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 a it's a switch. We we talk about the Baba Duke, and I'm very pleased with myself that I was able to blow her mind with one of my observations about this this movie that she's the fucking expert on, you know? So that is the deal with this month. I am, I guess I'm calling this series, This Is Your Slasher Life. That's that's what I've got. I, I reserve the right to, to change that title, but that's that's it for now. I might as well tease some of the other guests this month because it's not like this is some big corporate thing. If it changes, it changes. But this will be the first, I think the first, although Claire Favret and Megan Strickland, who host the after show with me, um, they they might have been on the main feed more than more than twice. But the to my knowledge, the 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 true um third time first three time guest on the show will be we on we this month incredible musician growing friend i believe we are going to hang out in person for the first time and record an episode about the movie annihilation so we're doing horror and horror adjacent things and then uh annie donnelly and joe scott of the podcast mom stomp a, a sort of uh, a sister a sister podcast of this show. They've both been on separately. They are going to talk to me about the movie Serial Mom, a John Waters movie in which a mom starts killing. So those those things are happening. I don't have locked in a fourth guest yet. I do have feelers out. I don't have a fourth movie locked down. So if you have suggestions about those things, Email me, this is Dave Marr at gmail.com. Call the phone uh, number 313 missed URA, 313 647 8872. And you can leave a voicemail and I will play that on the show and and we'll figure out. We'll figure out what's what's coming. You can also follow me on Twitter. That is how I got in touch with Joanna in the first place. Very excited for you to hear this conversation. I realize there's business up top, but that's the way it works. You know, this is not a big corporate concern, as I mentioned. And the deal is, the show is free. I love this fucking show. I love that just at the spur of the moment, this past weekend, I was like, you know, to be to be fully transparent, I was hurting for guests a little bit. I'm like... What should I do? Am I going to do a solo episode? I put out the call on Twitter. Very fortunately, I was hooked up with Joanna, and this all came together very quickly, which is awesome. And I love that I have the flexibility to do that on this show. That a thing, I get into horror movies, it has overlap with death stuff. The show's flexible enough. I I don't know. If you're listening, you either like the show and you're like, yeah, I, I love that too. Or you're new and you're like, 
okay, but you still haven't even reached the show yet, which, hey, totally great point. I understand. The point I was trying to make is that all that stuff is possible because I'm an independent artist. It's me and now Sam making this thing and the show is free and I'm very glad to offer it for free. At the same time, you can get even more of the show or just show your support by joining the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dave Marr. At the $5 level, you're an afterhead. At the $15 level, you are a pigeon subscriber. Those folks are Fred Fidawa, Susie Carroll, Kurt Chang, Katie Llewellyn, Shuba Singh, John Lee, and Debo. I will keep reading all of those names until it becomes unreasonably long to get through those names. So some shows, you join at a level, they read your name once. I'm reading your name every fucking episode, right? You're like you're like uh, PBS sponsors up in here. And the things you get, the $15 level, you get your name read. But at each level, you get the full conversations I have with guests. There is some stuff that is cut out of this conversation with Joe, but uh, you'll get that on the Patreon. You'll also get, I've done Afterlife Movie Clubs before, where we talk about Afterlife-themed movies. Those have all been on the main feed. I might start doing those on the Patreon a little bit more. So that's something to look forward to. I might have an occasional solo episode and the after show that I mentioned with friends of the show, Claire Favret and Megan Strickland. Those things live on Patreon and I would love your support. So I believe that's it except for Joe's stuff. Her book, like I said, Stepford Daughters is out via Common Notions now. Buy it via Common Notions. Don't go to Amazon uh, or get it through an independent bookstore or bookshop. But you can also follow her. You can join her Facebook group, Anti-Capitalist Feminists Who Like Horror Films. She she <laughs> she said she's old and she's on Facebook, so that's why it's a Facebook group. And you know, olds olds need things too. I'm I'm a I'm a medium old myself and Soon, Twitter will will seem as absurd as Facebook does. I think it probably already does. Anyway, most importantly, there are two sort of book launch events that Joe is doing for Stepford Daughters. One is Sunday, October 23rd at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon. She is showing The Babadook. Okay, so if you live in Portland or on the West Coast and you're able to travel to Portland, what a fucking great treat for you to binge this episode, Joe's book, and go watch The Babadook with a presentation from Joanna Isaacson beforehand on October 23rd, the Hollywood Theater. If you can't make it there, if you're in San Francisco or nearby, she is showing It Follows. She's doing a little presentation and then showing It Follows in San Francisco at the Roxy, R-O-X-I-E, uh, cinema. So you can get those things, links to all those things, links to Blind Field Journal, which she is a co-founding editor of. And yeah, you can you can find all those things in the show notes. So thank you for listening for for enjoying this introduction and now enjoy this this first episode 
inaugural episode of This Is Your Slasher Life with Joe Isaacson talking about the Babadook. I grab your whip and take it back to Shatown. When I'm in Shatown, I treat it like it's paint your hell. What is a personalized hell designed to torture you? I kind of recently wrote about ex machina and I kind of mm-hmm. think it would be to be in the kind of Bluebeard's castle with uh, these incels and Elon Musk types and people just kind of trapping me in this weird manosphere. <laughs> and okay, uh, wait, what is Bluebeard's um, castle? It's like this Bluebeard is like he keeps bringing home wives and putting them into little rooms and leaving them there. And then every new wife comes to his castle and thinks they're just getting married and going to have this beautiful life. Mm. And instead they're going to be locked in a dungeon where they'll be, you know, tormented forever. Totally. totally, totally. Okay. <laughs> um, so just that thing where you get like, even in a conversation trapped in this logic that just really opposed to your own and kind of bullied into silence about it whether it's through just the habit of emotional labor of a woman or through actual fear of violence or, you know, just, uh, and you, all the work you've done to feel like a person just starts to drain away and you just feel like a kind of robot, you know, or a, or, or just like a failure or something because you're not like the type of femininity for me, it's, you know, that's been the kind of, originary trauma I guess but it could be with race or with just you know being a nerd or whatever it is that made you feel mm-hmm. like an outsider you know and just having some Trump-like or Elon Musk-like figure who's like so sure of themselves kind of bully you into um, forgetting that you, you, you're kind of you, you're you're good with yourself or something like that right. <laughs> um, so like just that the kind of conversations that you're sometimes get trapped in but you know there's an end to but in hell you just it would just go on forever (laughs) Mm -hmm. would this place be occupied by multiple elon musk i'm imagining joe rogan-y types yeah sure or is it just one is there one king that that oversees it all Uh, i yeah probably the rotation would be especially demeaning (laughs) like Mm -hmm, you could mm -hmm. have like tucker carlson and uh, (laughs) you know (laughs) Um, just the whole manosphere kind of, you know, 4chan guys kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. cycling through <laughs> Right. Alex, what's right. his name? Alex um, Jones. Yeah, Alex Jones. Yeah. I don't know, but, um. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't, I shouldn't come correct with the names too much. Oh, yes, Alex Jones. Yeah, for sure. I, <laughs> you know. No, I'm, I mean, I want to know who they are. I want to get their addresses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What do you hope happens when you die? I am kind of, I mean, I'm basically, you know, I'm very much a materialist, but I actually, I was, this show made me think of how much I have a weird kind of woo-woo Marxism in, in my head that I haven't really, I never really talk about, okay. um, where I just kind of hope that I'm kind of part of a cultural revolution that leads to real transformation, kind of like in everything for everyone where we're kind of, you have to condition humanity 
to think completely differently before we could actually live in a sort of utopia or, you know, a heaven on earth. And, you know, in the book, like in the coda, I kind of talk about Walter Benjamin and the theses on history and how he kind of has this idea that, you know, he takes this painting of this Clay's Angelus and he, the, the, it's looking backwards instead of looking for progress into the future and looking at all of the dead that have been kind of silenced and all of the people who struggled for a better future who've been buried. And then he's kind of like looking at those like revenants or corpses that stand up again and kind of inform our hope to move into the future. Um, And so like my hope is that all the work I'm doing is like going to create this future that people are getting ready in their consciousness for like living better together and, and, and living, um, you know, without private property, hopefully, and with, you know, like without work that's demoralizing and not feeling desperate. And, you know, I don't have like a vision of like exactly how it would work, but like something good. But I was thinking the way that that would, would be really cool, which I, to be honest, don't believe would happen after I died is like, do you ever see Deep Space Nine? Or do no, you ever watch Deep Space Nine? But yeah, I have or... just been so excited about franchises recently. I watched every, at the time, all 40 seasons of Survivor during the pandemic. Whoa. During four months of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and so I've been very enamored with franchises of seemingly infinite, you know, well, content you might or, be yeah. a candidate for it. Right, 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 right. I, I became a Trekkie late in life, <laughs> but now I kind of am one. But they have this creature called, or it's not a creature, but you know, a kind of human called the Trill. Okay. And when when they die, um, they're they're just their whole species works this way, where their consciousness goes into the next body or to another body, and it's actually like kind of an operation where they're put in there, mm. and the person who like volunteers to be the host of the trill is like then still themselves, but also has all the memories and thoughts of the person that died. Yeah. Um, and that that kind of, and then they have generations of that because the trill has been doing this forever. Mm-hmm. So I would love to be like the the feature that I want, like the kind of, like my, my stepkid is so cool. Like they, they, like they, they're Gen Z and like, they didn't grow up with all the hangups. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. they did in some ways, but they figured out through the internet, you know, about gender, about, you know, there it's easy for them to think about socialism. It's easy to think. So like, I'm thinking like, you know, the cool kids of Z, there's just going to be more generations of that where they're just like exploding the idea of the possible. So I would like be like a kind of trill creature in their body and get to like kind of participate <laughs> in, the okay. next, in the next yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's a lot, but. <laughs> no, no. So wait, but in what way is that a woo-woo Marxism? Well, just the woo-woo, I guess, is like that, I, how to put it, I guess there's a a lot of strain of Marxism that people say it's like eschatological, I think that's how you pronounce it, where it's almost comparable 
to Christianity where you imagine that you're kind of living for a future utopia um, and that that's um, and that and that you're kind of part of this collectivity mm, that keeps okay. building to a future utopia. And there's people like Ernst Bloch, who has a book or a bunch of books called Principle of Hope or um, I don't know, um, Henri Lefebvre. Um, and, and they all kind of just have this kind of nebulous idea of utopia that the kind of Marxism goes towards, um, I guess. And I, I, I guess, uh, you know, that kind of idea that you're part of this sort of movement forward in futurity is the kind of spirituality that I have, if, if that's what you wanted to call it. Because I, you know, yeah, I think about that a lot, I guess, you know, of like, how am I going to add to this co collective consciousness that will create some kind of future utopia? Um, and maybe that's not too woo-woo, but it feels like no, I, less, I mean... less, there's like a lot of like value theory Marxists or like very like hardcore Marxologists that think more um, in a more rational way about it. And I guess I'm a little bit more romantic about it than some people are, you know? Okay. So this is going to be a big question and I'll just say it before I preface it, but what does it mean for you to be a Marxist? Because my understanding has gone through several iterations of only knowing the word. And I was like, as like an evangelical damaged kid, I'm like, I don't I don't love anything that has one guy's name in it as as a as an ism, you know. Um and then understanding that it is a a way of finding knowledge that is about like examining history and and and, and seeing things in contrast to each other and different eras leading to other eras and rubbing up against each other and creating something new. And then now I've sort of understood it in a way that includes that, but also includes the highly um, white intellectual labor focused political types right now who are like prefer to identify as Marxists rather than for they wouldn't touch the idea of liberation. You know what I mean? Like they, whether they, whether my idea of liberation overlaps with what they're working for, they would never want to call it that. Um, so tell me how wrong my ideas are and tell me what it means for you. Um, yeah. Ooh, that is a big question. I, um, know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess for me, it's more just, um, a way of thinking um, that, you know, like you say, thinking about history um, and thinking about mediation, like not just looking at things as they are, but looking at mm. things as sort of always being mediations of the way that our like general globalized economy works. So, I mean, I, you know, I've kind of in some ways am more, sort of like Catholic, like about, you know, I w I'm definitely not like a 
state Marxist or, you know, like any kind of, you know, classical Marxist or Marxologist, like I say, but um, just kind of making sure that you don't just take the surface of things, but that you understand that there's a kind of materialist basis for the ways that like say social relations work and, you know, um, social reproduction theory, I think is kind of just as a way of thinking um, is a way to understand that things that often aren't called work um, are really kind of, um, you know, that are called nature, called love, um, mm-hmm. actually have a long history behind the conditioning behind them. And that that makes certain things speakable for, you know, especially women, but like, you know, a lot of different people who are feminized or racialized or just kind of exploited, you know, in different ways. Whereas, you know, if you just say, oh, you know, women are natural caretakers of babies, then you lose the fact that like, well, as Sylvia Federici talks about, like in the transition between feudalism and capitalism, like women had to be made to do all this labor for men for free. And it was a way to divide men and women to, to, to get men to go into wage labor, to give up on the struggle to kind of not have their lands enclosed and to say, well, okay, I have to go work in the factory, but now at least I get this woman slave. Right. And, (laughs) and, and the women, (laughs) and the women that didn't do it, you know, were burned as witches, you know, so, Mm -hmm. you know, eventually. And so the fact that, you know, the kind of, and that's because in feudalism, it's less, not that it was ideal, idyllic, but the thing you talked about in the introduction to the book is that in feudalism, there was a more equal division of labor or, or less of a division of labor along gender lines, at least. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that, you know, those tasks were often just done by men and women together, you know, or if they didn't, the women would often do them collectively with each other rather Mm. than isolated in Mm -hmm. their homes, you know, and they, they weren't considered like less valuable than men's work. But, you know, with the transition to capitalism, you know, there's a way in which women became completely reliant on men for the wage, but also were very, you know, contributing to the fact that they could go to work by doing all the background work behind, you know, that made it possible for them to to go and to raise children and future workers and this kind of thing. And and the thing you say in the introduction that I was like, I think you low key just wrote a treatment for a new horror movie is you talk, (laughs) you talk about this, that without this, you know, quote, women's work, the social reproductive uh, actions, you know, uh, tending the home, whatever, that, that the men who go to these jobs historically would be in horror movies because (laughs) Because they would go naked, because their clothes aren't clean, they don't have clothes, they're there naked, they have to stay at work the whole time, because there's nowhere to go after work. And I was like, that like clicked something open for me. I was like, whoa, this is, (laughs) that is so, just that little, and tell me if that's right, that that is kind of a something that I would call just like thinking deeper about something, examining the foundations of something 
you tell me if I'm wrong, you might say that that is like a Marxist thought to examine something to, to just flip it on its head like that. Yeah, exactly. Just to kind of not take, you know, I was just listening to um, this podcast citations needed. Um, yeah. And they were talking about how like reality, there's this kind of problem with realism, right? Where, you know, you're always being scolded, everybody who's radical that, oh, you're not being realistic. You can't abolish the police. You can't, you know, have, you know, free tuition, whatever it is. Even you know, among just, leftists, yeah, people are called ultra liberals right. and shit. Yeah. And what they're, you know, what that rhetoric doesn't consider is that the same people, like they, they use the example of the New York Times, create that reality. They, mm-hmm. they would say it over and over and over and then use that reality that they've created and reinforced to like scold people about it. Right. And that like, you know, and so there's a way in which the only way we can kind of decondition ourselves from seeing the reality that we're fed as the only reality is through, you know, this sort of looking below the surface through thinking about, you know, reality as a mediation of, you know, the economic system and, and other forms of power hierarchies that, you know, are are hidden for a reason, right? Because if they weren't, then we'd, we'd all, you know, it'd be like they Revolt. live, right? We'd all take off the sunglasses yeah. and just be like, okay, we can't do this anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that was another thing because you didn't say essential worker in your um, introduction, but that is that was what I was thinking about while reading it. This, this, like this feminized labor, this women's work, this whatever as it, and it made, it felt really bleak because we actually had a term that could have given so many people open eyes about what was happening. We, it became so clear in March of 2020, who was essential or whose work was essential and whose work was not. And it was exactly the flip of what we value in society in terms of who gets paid the most and whatever. And the fact that that didn't become a huge uprising of we're essential, we're the grocery workers, we're the people who fix the the gas and power lines that get you these things. I was just like, Man, what a missed opportunity. Seriously, exactly right. Yeah. And like, um, you know, one of my points is that I think the the failure in some ways of second wave feminism was that it kind of said, oh, you know, the Betty Friedan line, all you have to do is get out of the household Mm. and into the work world. And then, you know, women will have achieved equality. But what that did in some ways was keep the message that reproductive labor is not important and shouldn't be valued. And so the essential labor, it did become some of it, a lot of it became waged and that's the kind of labor you're talking about of like feeding people and, you know, caring medically for people and and educating people Um, that, you know, on some level, that's an extension, I, I think of kind of this feminized housework. And by not saying, whether you go out into the work world or you stay home and do this, you know, reproductive labor, both of these things are completely essential. 
right? Then we get the lean in feminism where it's just like, okay, yeah. women, there's, you know, oh, look, you know, there's a, you know, woman president of Italy. Great. <laughs> She's a fascist, right. but it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Let's Lori Lightfoot in Chicago yeah. is the same, dude. Oh, uh, <laughs> black gay woman mayor, you know, it's like, and to still be so far off the mark and, yeah. Yeah. And that preserved the real, you know, you know, what Nancy Fraser calls a crisis of care where, you know, just the, that we need all this reproductive labor and then we're not actually valuing it and, and, you know, finding a way for it to really, you know, reproduce itself, you know, and, and just kind of making it this abject thing that people have to do out of desperation, you know, is, is, you know, really, um, you know, a failure of, of feminism, a failure of the left, I think sometimes, you know, to not center on that. My next prompt is for you to relive one memory. And I don't know if you got this far in whatever episodes you listened to, but the idea comes from my last one-man show where we're in the afterlife and I'm telling people that one of the rules of this afterlife is you get to choose one memory to fully drop down into and relive whenever you want, however many times you want, like a room you can walk into and out of. So if that were the case, what memory mm -hmm. would you relive? Yeah. Um, well, like during the pandemic, you know, I know it was really tough for people, so I feel kind of bad, but I, it was kind of nice in a way because things yeah. slowed down for me and we just kind of, yeah, things were just a little bit easier to do kind of nature things. I wasn't that big of a nature person before, but I feel like even though I can't like name a tree or <laughs> I kind of am now. <laughs> maybe, maybe two or three, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so one of the things that we did regularly is drive out to Utah where my stepkid is and um, go to all the national parks um, mm. and they're beautiful. They're just amazing. Um, and so when we went to Arches, um, we had a great time and we drove around for some reason, we all got into a Liebox version of the sound of music and we were singing that over and over Liebox? what's live <laughs> yeah they're like a german techno band okay okay really kind of um anyway my stepkid got super into that so we were just like singing it um and walking it was super hot so we didn't do like big hikes or anything but we didn't realize until the last night that it's um i think it's called a inner a dark sky park where it's like one of the darkest skies in the world so when you like go out at night, you just can see everything. There's no city lights. There's just billions of stars. It's really dramatic and beautiful. So the last night there, we just kind of drove out at night and just like laid back on the car and looked up together. And um, yeah, it was just, it was really beautiful. And it's also been like, it's that thing, you know, when you, when you become a step parent you're not sure like how it's gonna go and like yeah. you know if if the kid might not you know like you or <laughs> but we really like you know I love them so much um and and you know that was kind of just like this nice you know time where we got to spend more time with them and was it just you there. and them 
well, me, my partner, and my stepkids non-binary. So, and then, yeah, 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 yeah. So the three of okay. us were just kind of out there, but um, cool. Um, but it's just very dramatic and beautiful. So, so where are you uh, driving? Were, were you camping and then driving out, or were yeah. you in the park <laughs> the whole time? What was the situation? It was just an Airbnb. <laughs> okay, okay, but <laughs> like nearby, pretty nearby though, um, and so we gotcha. go out every day to. Um, okay. From from the Airbnb and and t- we usually it was like a hundred and ten or something ridiculous. So we usually like and and we all are not morning people. So we'd wait till like kind of early evening and go for like yeah. a, an hour hour and a half walk and just kind of play games during the really hot part of the day and stuff like that. But um, okay. it, it was really and it's it's the other two Bryce and Zion are more like walk around, but like at Arches you can also just kind of drive through the whole thing so that's hence the driving and singing was a lot of it too but it's yeah okay so you're listening to this swedish techno sound of music uh, (laughs) soundtrack i think they're austrian i should okay i apologize i apologize (laughs) um so yeah euro techno sound of music you're you're driving where are you pulling over at just these to sit on the car. giant rock formations. I mean, that's the okay. thing with these parks. It's like really red, like the 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 sand and the rock formations are just kind of almost bright red, mm-hmm. and they're giant and they're kind of weird shapes that some of them look like kind of monsters, and you can kind of see formations in them. So that was like my stepkid loved doing that of just like we'd see like what, what you saw in the rock formation yeah. and what, you know, kind of making up stories for it and that kind of thing. How old um, were they at this time? Uh, they were probably 14, 13. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, 14, I guess 14. Yeah. They just turned 16. So they're driving wow. us around now. <laughs> it's crazy. <Wow. laughs> um, so you're sitting on the car. Do you have any snacks with you of any kind? Uh, yeah, definitely. I'm a big nut person, mixed nut person. So we have, okay. some of the, I think it was really hot though. So we were mostly drinking like a lot of water. Okay. Um, they were really into candy at the time. Uh, my partner was probably also doing nuts and, and jerky. <laughs> okay. Okay. And um, you're just looking up at these stars. Do you yeah. remember what you talked about or did you talk? You know, we just kind of kept seeing like how in awe we were of where we were. And just, um, I think that was mostly it. We were, I think they, um, you know, my stepkid knew more about some of the star formations. So they were trying to puzzle out like what we were seeing. Um, But I think it was more just in my head. Like, you know, I've had like a very gradual trip towards feeling okay about the world. And like, it was just one of those moments that kind of clicked where like, Oh, my life is actually pretty damn good. (laughs) And I didn't, you know, there were times I did not think that that would, would be the case. And like, you know, I'm just with these like lovely people in this beautiful place and I'm not, you know, in the future, in the past, you know, time traveling to worries or anything like that. I'm just kind of being quiet and, and being, in, in my in the present you know for for a while and just really appreciating that what's your coma? and i don't i don't know how much i have to explain here i was in a coma the about eight years ago at this point um for a month 
and was almost taken off life support. I came back and it's not a clean before and after, but with some ups and downs, there is it's a it's it's one of a few dividing lines in my life where before I can say, oh, that was pre-coma, that was post-coma. For you, doesn't have to be that dramatic at all. Uh, or it can't. What is a moment of transformation where before you were one version of yourself and after you were another? Yeah. Um, so I would say, I mean, you know, during grad school, I got really deep into depression. Like I was pretty sad, but I was also like, I'm a true Gemini where I was like, faking it really well on mm-hmm. one hand and like seeming, you know, I would have big parties and, you know, I mean, I would, you know, on, on one level be able to kind of play the game. And then like, part of me was just like, so sad and so feeling like I couldn't do it. And, you know, I just like, didn't have the background. I wasn't really, you know, the imposter syndrome, mm. but also just like things were gray for me. And I was kind of wading through like a lot of grayness and feeling like, um, you know, just unable to enjoy things very well. And so, you know, it, it, I, it hit a nader at a certain point. And I think I, I just kind of was, was, I did hear your thing. So I knew what you were going to ask. And I was like debating whether to tell the story, but, um, and I know you, you probably have like a lot, (laughs) but okay, I'll just tell it. It's fine. Uh, so like my place I was living, my landlord's son lived behind us and they dealt hash. So they just had like a ton of hash whenever all you could eat hash basically behind my house (laughs) (laughs) I was just like you know this is like getting too bad you know like I I can't just keep living in the space of you know and I sort of just like took hash and just kind of sat there and tried to figure out a way out And I think that was like a moment, like I was just like, it's like a Henry James novel where you're just like in your interior for like seven hours. (laughs) Uh uh (laughs) And I just kind of, it was, I just, you know, clicked that like I was reading all this utopian stuff, stuff about feminism, stuff about that really I've been drawn to all my life, you know, and I, and I've always like loved sort of like bohemian creativity and like just the kind of lineage of artists that signify like liberation for me and like I even though I did all that I never internalized that like I could actually live by that like I could actually have that kind of hope and feminism and creativity for myself it was more just something I wrote about and not Mm. I didn't feel like I really could have it and I guess I feel like that I decided like, you know, I'm going to actually not just write about this or read this. Like I'm going to try to make decisions by it and, and, and keep making good decisions by it until life feels better, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I feel like I kind of did. And, you know, I still, it was like a long trip of, you know, getting out of depression, but like, for sure, I haven't really had, I mean, I'm on medication, but, but yeah, I haven't really right. had <laughs> had it like that, you know, for, for, it feels like a, like a long time, like it feels a pretty distant memory, but it was just like, and I think soon after that was a moment where um, we, you know, 
my kind of political comrades in grad school, we occupied a building and uh, just kind of protest, you know, tuition hikes, but also just general problems in the university that were kind of coming to a head. And, and we actually stayed in it for like, I think five days or something or a week. It was a pretty long thing where people were like living in it. I wasn't fully living in it, but I was kind of like helping supply it and part of it every day. And they would like have dance parties every night outside of it. They called it electro communism. (laughs) And (laughs) so that was like a a moment where I kind of got to actually kind of live it to like, you know, full time on some level. And and that really was, um, you know, it wasn't, the dynamics of everybody in retrospect wasn't perfect, but like it was, you know, definitely a highly romantic time for me, you know, in, in that way too. So that was kind of a, a good coma moment. Yeah. So when you say you, you chose to live by these creative feminist ideals that you had been reading and, and writing about, what does that mean in the everyday, like what, what would an example be of something where before you would have chosen one thing, but instead you chose another? Yeah, I guess, I guess it's just a lot of it is like internal dialogue, you know, like where, um, you know, instead of going into a party or something going like, you know, oh, I'm too poor and I'm not cute enough to be here or whatever. I would just tell myself a different story about, you know, that I did deserve to be there and that I, I was smart enough and that, you know, you know I did, um, my ideas were valid kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's just kind of as simple as, as, as that, like, or just, you know, that I, you know, I kind of feel like, and, and a lot of people on the left and I I've actually lost people on the left that saw it as a tragic, like, we're never going to win or, you know, mm. we're just going to go down in flames. Like for me, it's like, um, if you're kind of fighting for a better world, like you deserve to live really well. Like I'm pretty decadent. Actually. I like to, I really like to have fun, you know, <laughs> but yeah. hence the, hence the funeral, but like, you know, <laughs> that, <laughs> Um, that, you know, that, that we all deserve to like, you know, what Kristen Ross talks about as communal luxury. And she, she, it's been a long time since I read this book, but I love it. And it's just about the Paris commune and the way that people Mm. lived prefiguratively, you know, as if, you know, they, Mm. that they already lived in, in their sort of utopian commune or whatever the future would be. And that, the more of these moments of, you know, communal luxury that we can create, they're kind of models for us to keep going to build a better, a better world. And so prefigurative politics was a big part of my, what I would read about and, and, and the politics of the everyday of like, just creating these moments that almost like mimic what I want life to be like. And, you know, just kind of interacting with people as if, you know, I, we can be comrades. We can be, be loving towards each other. We can, you know, not being defensive and assuming they're thinking things about me that make us like driven apart or something like that, you know, and it's, you know, yeah, just, and often people that you think 
are, you know, hate you or whatever, when you are really open and loving with them and like assume that you could have some kind of collectivity, you realize like it, it's, you know, it could be great. I mean, even yesterday I had to take a, a lift um, from getting my car, whatever, maintained and this kind of, you know, old white kind of country listening kind of grumpy mm-hmm. guy yelled at me because I didn't hop in his car right away because I didn't know if it was the right one. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Um, but then like, you know, I was just really nice to him. And then he got really chatty and super open talking about how he like lost his business during the pandemic and how hard it is. Santa Cruz is like the most expensive place to live in the, you know, country oh. practically. So okay. like how hard it is to live. And, you know, we found ourselves agreeing on, this thing that some of my friends are working on measure N, which is like the empty house tax where we would tax people for Mm, not living in their houses. And we were bonding, you know, politically on this thing, even like, you know, even though I, I think, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I would have been like, "Ah, I'm scared of this guy. I'm just going to hold up and like, look at my phone the whole time. that he's Right. Right. (laughs) So, you know, we figured it sounds like a recipe for turning your hell to heaven where if you're just um you know go in with good enough faith you can change the elon musks of the world <laughs> just, yeah, I hope. but it's There's so funny people, like trumpist kind of no i know just don't think, i know i don't think you can do it. i don't know it no i totally me. agree yeah. it's this this moment is so interesting because um first of all anything that's that internal is fascinating because it's just like so much is going on where you had to get to a point, decide to smoke all this hash and have this moment. And then something actually changed, but it really was at, at the most basic level, just a decision on your part. And it's also dangerous because it doesn't sound like you took this lesson from it and your politics don't seem to reflect this, but it could, if I had had that moment at, at a different time in my life, the lesson could be individuality. I can take care of myself. I have everything within me. And there are truths to that that are good, but it risks a lot of alienation. It risks cutting yourself off from community, all the things that I imagine are actually part of those bohemian creative feminist ideals. So was it those ideals that kept you from just making it an individualist realization? Yeah, definitely. I mean, okay. I, I, I needed to see, you know, models. And like I say, you know, just even like reading about the Paris Commune and mutual aid is kind of my, my big political thing I do, you know, of just, you know, moments when, you know, there's these kind of communities that make things possible. I have to say, I scanned through your old episodes and I saw that you interviewed Mike Watt, who I love too. I love Nichols on the Dime. So I listened to that one, but like, you know, those little zines and community, I, you know, like, and I, I, you know, wrote about that kind of DIY culture a little bit in my, you know, my previous work. And so, uh, you know, just, those things, you know, or riot girl, whatever, that made things possible that just mm-hmm. weren't thinkable before, you know, they all seemed like you can't do that by yourself. Like you can't, 
you can't make, you know, Mike Watts said that, you know, I was having fun, like playing with D Boone in my basement, but I, the scene is what made it possible to like actually get out there. And, and do, well, that's the irony yeah. of that DIY stuff is that the why is a, is a collective yourself, you know, it's like, we we're actually doing it together. You know, yeah. we're doing it ourselves in the sense that we're, we're told that the mainstream is the only way to do this properly. But it, it, yeah, I mean, he is, he's, uh, a strange, amazing guy to have a conversation with because he has his whole own lingo of all the, you know, econo stuff and everything. But, um, you want to say the P word? <laughs> yeah, he didn't want me to call it a podcast, which, like, you know, I, we all have different lines, and I, under, I understand his thing that it's like, well, it came from iPod, and that's a super branded thing. It's like, you know, that's not my line. I share the value. It just the that specific word doesn't happen to be where my line is. But it is really funny. And it was so nice that I was able to that he had a sense of humor about it. He wasn't like, ah, don't say podcast. You know, it was like, um, yeah, he was having fun with it. Of course. Sure. Yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> but yeah. OK, that's that. I mean, I mean, that makes sense. It, it makes sense that those values, if that's what you went into the cocoon of hash to find were the ones that kept it from just being this, like now I'm fucking Superman of, of my own. Yeah. I'm just gassed up on my own ideals or whatever. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, it does worry me because I think the yeah, hitting bottom in a way or sadness or precarity or desperation you know, we see like the other way that people are going right now. And it's really scary, you know, like, um, of just, um, there's even a like term like a, a negative solidarity of just like mm. even bonding together over, you know, like feeling your own austerity and like how hard I work and how, you know, mm-hmm. I, this mm-hmm. belongs to me and those migrants and those women and those whatever don't do the kind of, you know, work that I do. And, you know, this is kind of building of a carapace or a, like exoskeleton of hardness or whatever that, yeah. that doesn't let other people in, you know, is, you know, definitely, you know, a way that that precarity and worry, you know, and, you know, and that was part of my, you know, depression is I didn't have any money at that, you know, like, and just, you know, that kind of desperation, you know, of like, okay, you know, how am I gonna just get through the day with this kind of burden and try to be an intellectual when you really aren't sure how you eat, you know, kind of thing is like, you know, is, is, is hard, you know? And so you can see, you know, yeah the other direction that <laughs> could lead to for sure. Yeah. Well, and it happens with people who even are it, it, you know, it sounds like we're close politically. I don't, I'm not assuming any complete overlap with anyone, but like that people who are close to where you and I are politically also, I've seen do that with people who aren't vaccinated, who aren't masked. And I mean, for the worst reasons, the people who choose to do that thing, who I detest, there are people who are close to my politics who are like, good, fuck them. Let them die. We just need to let them die off. And then everyone, it's like, I get it. I get the the desire for 
uh, uh, quote, like, good genocide, so to speak. <laughs> like, a, like, let's get all, let's just, let's keep all the good people around and let's get rid of all the people who are actually trying to do genocides. And it's like, eh, no, we become them by doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know the way. I mean, I definitely don't. I agree with you that we need to try to bring as many people over and and like you say, just kind of have this. I mean, teaching where I teach, where there you know is a lot of anti-vax sentiment. You know, I I right. really want to reach people, and I do think that people don't get information. They don't. You know, they they're they're just not the. Um, outreach that there could be to get to to know um, enough to 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 think well about these things um so yeah I mean I I definitely you know at you know at school I feel like I don't I don't put my politics out there I'm mm-hmm. I'm like a little nervous because I'm becoming more public of a person and like <laughs> what's sure. gonna happen when <laughs> they know <laughs> but um you know but I but I do compartmentalize and at school like I try to put it in terms of finding where people are at and like my students are really poor most of them and like are are really struggling and just trying to think about like what their struggle means and and just kind of talk about their situation and go from there in terms of what the conclusions are rather than like a top-down ideology of like how to think or something like that um but you know during the pandemic you know like a lot of my students you know became homeless, jobless, had to quit school to take care of their kids, you know? And so, um, yeah. So just kind of having them, you know, kind of think about it's, you know, cause I think there's a rhetoric, you know, especially in community college teaching of like grit and resilience and like Mm -hmm. bootstrapsism Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. And just kind of, again, you know, not calling it Marxist, but like, let's think about what's happening to you, not just as an individual phenomena, right? Let's think about what's happening to you as something that's widespread as a structure and how could we find structural solutions or how can we critique it as a structure rather than imagine that, you know, if you just work hard enough, you'll you'll get out of it and you'll leave everyone else behind, you know, basically. So we're here. We've arrived. It's fucking Baba Duke time. I'm Baba very Duke, excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the thing is, you've written how many times have you seen this movie? Oh God, um, I don't know. My guess is probably like seven or so, but not okay. maybe seven to ten. <laughs> but sure. it's not not too recently. But um but it's pretty, you know, it's always kind of there. In my, yeah. In my head. yeah. 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 So your I know your reading of the Baba Duke. And despite our 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 exploration of Marxism earlier, uh this is uh, I don't think ever in danger of becoming a, a Marxist, explicitly Marxist podcast. So we're, <laughs> so I'm approaching things from a much more personal, existential, I guess sort of spiritual, but it's more just like, how do we extract uh, meaning? And, and, and I'll be honest in, on an individual level, it's a little less systemic, you know, the way, that I approach things at times. And so 
so I'm curious and I'm excited to venture into talking about different aspects of this movie that are different than the reading you've spent a lot of time very convincingly constructing, which I should just have you say it, but I'd rather, I want to see if I get it right. That your, your reading of the Babadook is that this is the intersection of, uh, of, of sexism and capitalism. That this is this is why it's important for us to be on the flip side, Marxist and feminist at the same time, uh, so that that like class and gender oppression go hand in hand. So as we talked about earlier, you can't you know dividing things along gender lines, making certain work women's work, makes it so that you can then give the men these these wage jobs and keep them down and keep them uh oppressed and so we see amelia is her name right yeah mm-hmm. we see amelia unravel and we see the way in which she has no support even her own sister like abandons her because this kid i forgot how much a fucking nightmare this kid is especially at the beginning but uh by the end he's kind of doing like restorative justice when he's got her like like roped up in the basement and he's like i'm not leaving you i'm like this is how organizations should deal with abusers in their midst <laughs> it's like tie them up in the basement but let them know that you're with them and you're not abandoning them but but so he's a he's a nightmare and to me the thing that really like drove your point home is just seeing her relationship to work that like she's in this service job at a at an old folks home and and her boss is horrible and they they cut her shifts when she's sick as opposed to understanding anything and so um yeah, and 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 so this movie shows how clearly those th- two things are intertwined. What am I missing in my interpretation? Well, the only thing I say, I say totally true, totally right, except for I think that one thing that's important is like that as it's evolved into our moment, this kind of, you know, whatever I would call feminization of labor or the ways that the work world is taking on the kind of characteristics of housework. And so like, yeah, Amelia didn't kind of, she doesn't, she's not a housewife, but both her home life and her work life are kind of this devalued labor. But Mm -hmm. I would say men, you know, you know, might be on an individual level, sometimes oppressing women, but that men really suffer from this too. And it's really like a, a chance for, solidarity like between women and men because men are also in those jobs you know and and also being feminized in that way and like I think that this sort of new kind of manosphere or you know uh, kind of hardened masculinity is somewhat a defensiveness against having to be in these jobs that they they can you know that are devalued and feminized and a kind of like grasping for some old form of, of masculinity but it doesn't the, that that it doesn't have to be that way. There could be like a lot of solidarity between. So that's just kind of, it's not that no, to totally. do with the poverty. The idea that I, I, like, yeah. 
uh, freeing anyone frees all of us that yeah, like yeah yeah until the last of us are free none of us are free and that yeah all yeah. oppression like, is in some ways similar yeah yeah and then the shows of yours that i listen to it's like everybody's scrambling for like an okay job that doesn't kill them, right? You know, that, that you've interviewed, it seems like. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just projecting that. It, 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 t- t- remind me who, who's I doing I mean, that. I've just been listening to like clips as I drive around, yeah. but it just seems like, yeah, just like, you know, that there's very few people that aren't feeling like this precariousness, you know, especially, sure. well, especially sure. you know, the creative people you're around that are just like, you know, having to hustle all the time, you know? Well, so, and that's yeah. the thing, the people who don't feel the precariousness just aren't aware of it. Yeah. It's, yeah. The fucking financial, you know, there's been multiple financial crises since 2008, but that's the one everyone references. But it's like all these jobs that are thought of as stable jobs, they disappear out from under people just as much as, touring comedian disappears out from under someone yeah you know? exactly um, yeah so what uh, so that so that's the sort of highly socio-political analysis of the babadook what do you think the babadook has to say about death interesting yeah well so let's just say who dies so the 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 whole yeah. thing is about the grieving of her husband who Mm -hmm. died when her, her son was born. And she, so basically they were in a car together. um, They had a crash and the the husband died. Samuel was born and the, the fraught relationship in my mind between Amelia and Samuel is that they, she can't fully love him because she symbol he symbolizes her grief for her dead husband mm-hmm. and that she can't even like celebrate his birthday on the day that he's actually born because that's the day that her husband died. And oh, so interesting. She, you think that's her choice? Yes, I think that I think that is. You don't yeah. think that's Samuel saying I don't want to have it because he doesn't remember. He doesn't dad. remember. Yeah. You're there's right. little okay, things. Okay. If you go back through it, there's little things that make it pretty clear that it's her choice that she won't okay. celebrate it on the day. Cool. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the most obvious reading, mine is a little far-fetched in a way. The most obvious reading is it's about grief. And and sure. in terms of the after, I mean, it, it, that death is about for me, it's it's about the people left behind, you know, having, you know, lost people too. Um, and she, you know, is a kind of, I guess, a classic case of like melancholia instead of mourning. She doesn't go through the mourning. She goes, she keeps it all inside. And that's what gives birth to the monster. The Babadook is that she's repressed her grieving for her dead husband for, you know, seven years. That's how old Samuel is about to turn, you know, when it happens. And so, you know, in a way, I think, you know, in terms of like monsters and ghosts and things that symbolize the afterlife, I mean, I think her facing off with that is actually in some ways utopian in that it's like having those ugly emotions and those and those cathartic emotions that hurt so badly is going to allow her to go on to an another stage of of 
of life where she's she hasn't let go, you know, of of her of her ex-husband or you know of her her dead husband, but she can manage the emotions around them because she's around it because she can face face them. So um, it's kind of I think a really beautiful movie about grief and repression and just um, the ways that like the dead can become more a part of your life than the people around you if you kind of just internalize that that grief and don't ex- don't express it you know in in this way so yeah and so uh, i noticed the the first note i took was about um the woman at the grocery store early on who samuel blurts out he's playing with her daughter and and then the her this this little girl's mom comes over to both of them and Samuel blurts out that oh I don't have a dad because he died when driving my mom to the hospital to have me and the woman and the minute he says that despite her giving sort of understanding to Amelia on the surface it was just like immediately they are tainted by grief and that reminded me the way in which a thing that I sort of a a drum I keep beating that made that my experience became made really clear to me, but I see it in other experiences, right? So like people eulogized me when I was in the coma because there was a moment when people thought I died. I read those later, but they didn't do me any good. I I was in the coma when that shit happened. When I really needed help was three months later when no one was paying attention, when it was just the people who were still showing up for me. And the the thing that I had a friend share with me about was having a kid that like at the beginning, people bring you meals, all this stuff. And then six months later, they're gone and you're still dealing with the world rocking of having this kid. And so to me, that was like such a good demonstration of that how like oh you are you are about to be touched by the babadook i don't i don't want anything to do with you you know totally i haven't thought about that way but that's brilliant that's so true and and that's what she she's afraid of is not just the emotions but the judgment and the untouchability and like that's you know she she like don't talk to claire like her you know it keeps telling samuel not to talk to her sister, who's her only family left, um, about it, right? And, and embarrassing and, her in front of the neighbors. Yeah. And the neighbor could not be more understanding of everything. Yeah. But yeah, it's all about respectability. Yeah. And just internalizing that stigma is, is totally true. And 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 I think that's so right that, you know, there's a kind of a spectacle of death, and then there's the kind of rolling out of the aftermath and the spectacle is yeah when everybody's there Mm -hmm. and then you know i mean yeah i've just i've been watching you know or trying to help my partner's father commit suicide like just a year and a half ago and so just like the kind of you know cycles where oh i'm i'm fine now and then of course you're not fine you know and so and just kind of but there's no I mean that there's no system in our. I mean, not to get back to the materialism, but yeah. there's nothing in our society that like 
you know, there's other cultures that have grief rituals that aren't mm-hmm. just like of, you know, that moment. We don't have those, those rituals and those ways to connect to our, our grief or, or same with child, you know, raising a child, we don't have these networks of support, extended families, things like that, that kind of come back. And I, I thought that was so interesting in the Babadook when, you know, she has to take Samuel out of school because he, or because he get he, you know, gets stigmatized for his, you know, neurodiversity or his outbursts or whatever right. it is. Right. And the he's just bringing work- some weird little wooden weapons to school. Yeah. <laughs> like- <laughs> <laughs> um, and the social workers come to the house and it's just clear they're not there to help. They're yeah. there to just judge and to to terrify terrorize her when she's already terrorized, like the, the with the threat of not being enough of a mother or enough of a caretaker. And she's like unraveling. And they're just not, you know, they're just these, you know, even the way they're filmed is as these kind of from below, as these kind of stark mm, authoritarian yeah. figures kind of thing. Yeah. So um And they just say, like, even at the end when things have been mended. And and things are so much sunnier, and they're they, they've got the birthday decorations up. He's like the guy is like, he's been out two weeks. Uh, it's about time to get him back, right? It's like, well, okay, what's your fucking plan for that? Do you have some programs to help him get back, or you're just saying it's about time to throw him back in the school? You know, totally. And like the, from the last time they were there she's like cleaned up the whole house. She's got her, you know, although it's still, what is up with this dark ass paint job? (laughs) That is the most drab (laughs) blue, black, gray paint job in the world. I, I I saw an interview with Jennifer Kent, the director, and she said she had a color palette for the um, movie. That's just four colors. It's like just blue, black, white and pink and that's it um and she wanted it to feel kind of washed out and melancholy throughout so that kind of is how she controlled and apparently she drove people crazy that were making the film (laughs) excluding every other color they had to figure out how to do it or whatever but um but yeah i mean i think i think that the fact that even at the end the color scheme is is fairly gloomy is, you know, the way, like you're saying that you don't get rid of, of grief, you know, you don't like, you don't come out of the coma and then suddenly the coma never happened. Right. Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like the, it's in the basement and you got to feed it the worms and it's going to be scary every time you think about it. And, and, um and so the house is not suddenly this cheerful place, you know, or something like that. It's just more manageable, you know? Well, that was the thing I liked about the end. And I should just say, uh, we're we're not this is not a a a recap situation we're doing here. This is a hopefully you've seen the Baba Duke. If not, go watch the Baba Duke. Um, or a pre- we'll give context for, you know, the the worms are what she Amelia feeds the Baba Duke who's in her basement at the end. But uh we're not we're we're spoiling things we're doing uh, yeah i think it, I I think it goes worst, without I'm saying the worst with spoilers like oh no no me. no no well I, I do the same thing with this show i've only recently i i think i do a de- did a decent job before but i had to remind i had to start remembering like okay when someone mentions like suicide for instance maybe it's a good idea for me to say in the intro 
that that happens because I'm just like, well, we're talking about death. So pretty much every, it's going to be, I'm, I'm going to make it light, but it's going to be pretty dark stuff, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm the same way, but the, the thing about the, the reason I said that is because we're talking about the end right now. Cause who cares about chronology? But the thing that blew me away is that it was still so scary when she went to feed the Bobby. The way I remembered it, she stayed at the at the top of the stairs, um, through the the bowl of worms and dirt to the Babadook, and then it came back up empty or something like that. And it was way more intense than that. Yeah, and like- and. She knocks said that, her off her feet, right? He She's knocks like her off her feet. She's right? like, yeah, doing like a matrix sort of <laughs> yeah, fall. Yeah. And then she tells, and Samuel asks how it was. And she was like, oh, it's pretty quiet today. I was like, that is a quiet one? Like, okay. Which was so perfect because it was like, yes, you've got this thing. It still lives in your house. You've made peace with it. And yet it is still so scary when you are managing it. So it's like, coming to terms with your grief or whatever doesn't mean there was, okay. What, what did she say? She said, Oh, um, she said to her sister was like, it's been seven years, you know, move on. She was like, I have moved on. I don't mention him. I don't talk about him as if that is moving on, which is not. But so then when you do mention and talk about him, it's still going to be painful and it might be just as painful every time, but you know, you can get through it. And that is somehow the change that happens. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even though I do kind of agree with you that Samuel is kind of awful, he's actually kind of <laughs> also wonderful in that course, from the yes. beginning, he like, he's, he'll talk about it. Like mm-hmm. he'll just talk about anything. And and that does give him a kind of balance and ability to love that Amelia doesn't have. And, and, you know, he's always going to be a weird kid, right. Who's going to struggle, but the fact that he can like say, Oh yeah, I was born and my dad died. And, you know, and my dad's, uh, you know, it's just like kind of come out with that, that mm-hmm. stuff, you know, um, you know, that, I think she's almost learned from him too that ability to kind of like, you know, not just, repress your grief and not to care what other people think that much like not to keep to you know it's kind of a similar awakening that I felt I had where it's like you go into a situation like oh I am allowed to speak about the things Mm -hmm. I think are true I don't have Mm to uh, obey like the sort of rules of etiquette when I talk about you know my my you know my grief or my situation or this kind of thing and so yeah um, and it's wild the wait, sorry, what were you saying? No, that's it. That's it. I well, was just... it's <laughs> you were just what? Just saying words to say them. Please go on. <laughs> okay, okay. So the thing that that was making me think. So the other big, all, pretty much all the rest of my notes are about the power of speaking things and how that's the the. I mean. I, I I risk even saying some of this stuff because your reading in the book is so <laughs> nuanced and academic and sophisticated, and I'm like, well, so it's about grief, and you gotta say, you gotta you gotta talk about it. That's the thing, you know, <laughs> which is like the most obvious thing. But it 
what what you're reminding me of right now about just say it and who cares if people are uncomfortable is how people are able to be uncomfortable at the littlest things. And my example of this is I uh, I guess I still will sometimes do it, but especially before the pandemic, I would help run uh, commercial auditions for a casting agency. So sometimes these would be callbacks and the clients, you know, the fucking shoe company or the guys at the ad agency would be in the room and their value. So I'm getting to hear them talk about people in all the ways that we all like suspect or most actors know how people talk about them, but I'm like hearing it, you know, Uh. and the, the first a lot of times they'll do this in auditions where someone like says their name and then it's like, Oh, a quick thing about your day or your favorite, your favorite place to kayak for kayaks.com or some shit like that, you know? And this was just, I think it was just something about their day or if you use a, you know, a car or something like that. And this actor was like, Oh, I biked down here and I almost got in a car accident. And I was like this crazy thing. It's like, and that's, you know, and said, had some story about having to stop really quickly. And, oh, and I think taking a spill because he had to stop and almost getting hit by a car. And as someone who biked a lot at the time, I was like, oh, that's just, a, that's a nothing story. It, 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 in a In a not judgmental way, just in a like, oh, yeah, that's what biking in the city is like. And these guys were like... Well, it's kind of negative. That was kind of intense. Uh, and, and they assumed because they gave him this prompt and he just answered in the most like sort of nonchalant, honest way that because he mentioned that it is dangerous to ride a bike in a city sometimes that he was like a because in the world of these commercials, that's the trick to audition for him. You learn that like there literally are emotions on the scale that you have there are notes on the keyboard that you cannot hit if you want to get like get cast in these commercials and the notes are a frown unless it's an exaggerated frown about the smell of the carpet or something uh anything approximating you know real life without bumpers and it's so so it's like so why not just be the kid who says like yeah, my dad, uh, my dad died driving my mom to the hospital to have me because people are going to get upset by you saying that your favorite color is blue instead of yellow, you know? Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a way in which, you know, the whole film is kind of speaking these unspeakable things. And like, mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh, yeah, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to be an actor like <laughs> having yeah, to present yeah. I mean oh my god just daily life you know like <laughs> I'm just but um but yeah just I mean I think one of the things that I don't know I kind of read it this way is like her being possessed by the Babadook because the Babadook kind of like goes in her body and she becomes yeah. like a monster like she mm-hmm. says the worst things to her son that you could possibly said like you know she's like why don't you go eat shit when she, and doesn't feed him at some point <laughs> yeah she's yeah, like, yeah yeah uh you know some I, there's so many times i wish you were dead instead of him like all the mm-hmm. stuff and like just you know i always read there's like these things in the guardians 
uh, that like moms write about how like there's just all these rules of how you talk when you're a mother of like that you're not allowed to say anything about how hard it is, anything about your feelings of ambivalence, anything about your, you know, like even like, you know, just any warnings even to people sort of outside, right? (laughs) And like all of those things are just, you know, like, said in this you know way that that is kind of you know cathartic you know for I think many mothers you know like not not that they feel those extremes obviously of of, but just that they are somewhere allowed to be said that 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 it's so much worse than the things they've been thinking yeah (laughs) there's like this space to like have those feelings of ambivalence and those feelings of um you know, just a lack of support, you know, and like she, you know, she only becomes possessed when everything else has failed her, her like family's abandoned her, the school system has abandoned her, she can't get a psychiatrist for, you know, her son, you know, and, and then, you know, but that's kind of, I think, emblematic about how we all will do that, we'll all not say this, the things that we know will turn people off, until we're absolutely desperate, you know, like until, you know, like until the point where like every, we feel abandoned by everything and then we'll just kind of like, you know, people explode, you know, in the, in these ways, you know? Yeah. The moment I noticed in this, which was still like, she, a, a thing snapped in her, but it was still a little bit before the Babadook like jumped into her body from the ceiling. <laughs> but, but, it's when she's she's at uh, the cousin Ruby's birthday party, and all those women moms are in the kitchen talking, and they're they look like they're at a funeral. They're dressed in all black. Oh right, I forgot about that. Yeah, and I was right. like, this is very interesting. But then she snaps, and they're talking about uh, you know how they don't even have time to go to the gym anymore, and she just is like. That mu- that's such a tragedy. You must really be able to relate to the the poor women you volunteer for, you know. And I was like, okay, this is a moment when she's she's not even you know possessed by the Baba Duke. She's just going off on her own how she really feels. Yeah, yeah, and this is kind of ways that instead of like really when like somebody drops out of the class like of their friends or something, you know, like when, when you have a certain expectations of like what, you know, what you can afford when you're like with other people of your class. Yeah. And like, I think often when somebody falls out of that class, you know, there's, they become kind of an untouchable and people will find ways to like drop them or to kind of ignore their plight, you know, that, you know, they don't say it's for that reason, but you know, it's like they can't, you know, afford to do the same things that their friends do. Or, you know, there's just a lot of, um, you know, I, I mean, you know, Instagram culture where you're like supposed to be able to do these things that like Mm -hmm. are kind of, you know, I love the idea. There's just like these other articles you read about people who just take a year and don't buy anything and try to have fun. And so (laughs) Um, wow. I mean, I, I can't yeah. do that. I'm very, I, like I say, I'm very decadent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, 
Uh, but yeah, no, and and right, and she just kind of um, the the Babadook is in a continuum with her own sort of mm. falling out of the you know the mask of just pleasantness, and yeah. she really tries to be pleasant and sweet, you know, like she oscillates between this mm-hmm. real gentle, sweet tone and kind of compliancy, and then. Yeah, then she'll have these little moments of break that keep building and building. And then the Babadook enters her and it just goes like full wired, you know, like crazy. And yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting the thing you're saying about like friendship uh and classes. I mean, I've heard so many stories about it's it seems like especially groups of like female friends who are like, oh, we have this girls' trip every year. And I feel pressured to do this thing because they all have blank jobs and I am still just a server or something like that. Um, but it happens with, with everyone. And the, and the way it happens, not even exact, it's not purely financial that I've noticed in my life is with career success, especially in a public facing career like entertainment. There are, you know, people I came up with who have the TV jobs or film jobs and people who don't. And it's, I, it, there, I, I'm fortunate that there are people I'm, I'm in the don't <laughs> category <laughs> to be clear. Um, but, it, but it is wild that. So first of all, that I told this to one of my friends who is in the, haves category and i was like there's a way in which i have thought you are a more valuable person than me because of x and y and it's like genuinely how do we take how do we stop equating fame into the equation of human worth but also it's hard not to notice when Certain friends do call me when they come back to Chicago and certain friends don't. And some of that's just getting older and growing apart and people are busy. And genuinely, that might be the, that might be the case every single time. I doubt it, but it's probably, but, but it might be, but then it's hard to not to notice that like, oh yeah, some people, you know, because if you did, if you are living your dream, you've worked as hard as everybody else, at least for the people I know, you probably don't want to spend time where 10% of the, if you're hanging out with people who aren't in your boat, 10% of their brain at any given time is thinking, how do I get where they are? How do I get where they are? And it's like, yeah, you wouldn't want to be around that sort of desperate even minorly desperate energy. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, I think like with this journal that uh, blind field that we do, like, yeah, we ended up kind of arriving that one of the horizons we have to kind of keep working towards, we call it like anti-work. And obviously it's not that we don't do work or we don't like have projects or whatever, but it's just that like everything that we can imagine like it is kind of unimaginable to not feel those hierarchies. Like it's hard to imagine yeah. a world where we could actually get out of them. And, and that's because I think everything we imagine is kind of tethered to work. Like it's like the, it's like the soul, you know, it's like Weber says like the spirit of capitalism. It's like this way that like, it just, there, there's kind of these ways that we're all like given sort of feelings that are, 
useful to the striving mentality for work, right? You know, and that we can't, we're so conditioned with them, they feel very natural. And like, it's really hard to imagine, like, what would you do with your time if you didn't need money and you didn't care about hierarchy? Like, how would you even arrange your life, right? (laughs) And like, I mean, I think horror is so cool because it doesn't, because it's unimaginable, um, I, I think positive representations of like what a world without work would look like kind of are always limited because it's only what somebody actually imagined that's in our world. But like just negation, just saying no, dropping out the way you do when you get possessed. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's just like, okay, fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to say terrible things about my son. I'm going to scream. I'm going to cry. I'm going to, you know like kick down doors and just be full of energy. And, and like, it's just like this symbol of the no, like this giant no to everything. (laughs) Yeah. Without trying to like, you know, make it, you know, sketch out what the yes would be. Cause we really don't know. Like, I don't know what, what it would be, you know? Sure. Sure. That, that, I mean, that reminds me of like abolition where the, and, and where people, so the thing that initially attracted me about abolition was the anger that I felt at police at first, you know, and then what kept me was the creativity of like, well, actually abolition is presence as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, like we're trying to create life-sustaining institutions. And then I heard people say, especially black people because the white people love the hope white people are like oh abolition is it's good it's touchy-feely and you not just black people people who are affected by prison police violence um gendered violence all this stuff are like well let's not forget that tearing the negative things down is also important too like yes it's positive and it's building but there is power in just the negative. And I think that's what, that's what I, that's what I'm getting excited about in horror as a genre. And that's what I'm interested. The little criticism I've, I've seen the like horror criticism I've seen. It always seems to, it's not about like the lessons we learn. It's, it's, it's not about like identifying too much with the people. It's more identifying with the monsters and being like, Oh, what is what is this movie like from the Babadook's perspective? You know, which is, yeah, what is it? This this Babadook wants to shows up in this house, wants to wants to be let in, wants to do some damage, wants to wants to inhabit her, wants to kill the dog, the kid, and her. Um, but is it is it is it evil? <laughs> is it looking for acceptance? I don't know. Is there a way in which to interpret this neutrally? I'm trying to think. I, I don't know exactly. Yeah, well, I think the Babadook is definitely like the hero in a way, but because it's like her shadow side, like there's even a point mm-hmm. where she mentioned she used to write children's books. So yeah. I actually think she yeah. created that book herself, you know, like on some, like, that's my, that's my theory. Okay. I love that. <laughs> that is what I'm talking about. Yes. Um, but, um, and like, you know, yeah, like with feminist work, critic Barbara Creed has a lot of stuff about like what it means for a woman to be possessed in a horror movie. 
And it's like, you know, all the things that we are disgusted about women. I mean, part of what the like system of gender is built on is like this fantasy that like the masculine realm is like logical and <laughs> strong and rational yeah. and um, neat in, in, in boundaries and the feminine is like spewing and leaking and <laughs> emotional and irrational and gross. Hairy. Hairy. Yeah. Like all the, all the things that, you know, are associated with like childbirth and menstruation and, and just, you know, hysteria or whatever. And that, you know, possession is this kind of moment where that whole realm fights back, right? The rational yeah. world is attacked by the grotesque feminine right and it wins for a while <laughs> and like you know you even see like at one point she's like okay well my life sucks but at least i can masturbate <laughs> she's yeah. to do that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and even that gets interrupted by the needs of others right she can't mm -hmm. even you know she can't be angry she can't have sex she can't have a relationship she can't not show up to work and but the Baba Duke, it's like the liberation from all of that, right? And it's just yeah. like, you know, um, so I think in a lot of cases, like the monster is all this repressed stuff that um can only be depicted as evil in our in our schema of representation. Like we aren't, you know, there's no positive rec representation, but but it, it gets its it gets its revenge, <laughs> yeah. it gets its uh, viewing at least. <laughs> sure. I, th the last sort of like um, aha, I feel clever moment that I that I have in my notes is that the Nate. So the neighbor is so cool with Samuel being fucking intense about you know saying all this shit, and even says to Amelia like. Oh, he's just like his dad. He really sees the world, you know, all this stuff. And my theory is that she is, um, because she is closer to death, she's more comfortable with it and is, uh, you know, by, by virtue of the fact that she's older and that that makes her see things more clearly in the way that's so often portrayed that like kids and old people you know, old people, well, and kids unfairly given this like innocent tag, which is like one of the things that bothers me the most as a comedian in a, a comedy club is when people act like cursing is going to offend people in their 60s and 70s. It's like this person, this, this person disemboweled someone in Vietnam, you know what I mean? And I'm supposed to like not say fuck around them. Like, what are you talking about? You know? Or, like, pretend they don't know what anal sex is. Not that that's even my, like, material, really. But it's just, like, it's, that should just blows my mind. But I do think there is a way in which the veil is a little thinner between, you know, even the, the doctor says, like, all kids see monsters. Um, and so I thought she was, yes, com more comfortable with him, encouraging of his expression, because she's closer to death. And I felt especially vindicated with that when I realized her name is Mrs. Roach. And the roaches oh, are the thing that come shit. out of Amelia when she's <laughs> inhabited by the Babadook. Oh, so Mrs. God. Roach has some fucking Babadook in her. Oh, you! this is so helpful. This is brilliant. Because I was just, the last time I was watching it, 
That's exactly right. And I, I kept wondering, why does she keep looking out the window at Mrs. Roach? Because she mm. does that a few times. Yeah, yeah. And it's at very significant moments. And I just didn't really follow up or have a theory, but that right. is exactly it, right? Yes, she this is great. I feel amazing that, right now. No, you just blew my mind because I <laughs> just was like, okay, I'm just leaving that one. <laughs> well, and you the to, other... You don't have to have a theory of everything, but now of I course, do. Of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, the... like, like now I feel like, ah, oh, yeah, that last little piece of the puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> well, great. and the other yeah. thing that blew my mind too is we find out her first name when he's making the call to her late at night. Like, can we stay with you? Um, Her name's Gracie. So the roach is the dark side and this grace name, you know, which like, there's no way that Jennifer Kent knew my definition of grace that came from a sponsor in the program who told me that like grace means the ability to start over and, have it turn out differently, you know? So if you're like struggling with relapse, it's like, why keep trying to get sober? It's like, because you actually can like, you know, you can get sober and it stick this time, you know? And, and that's just like a definition of grace that I really like hold on to and cherish. But the idea that this woman is grace, Gracie Roach is, 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 is in touch with, renewal and refreshment and building while also being in touch with the seep and the rot and the dark is like that just i was like that is a fucking chef's kiss jennifer and you just made me realize because i'm such a vulgar marxist sometimes i don't think very clearly about these things but like that it matters not just that she has a job caring for others but it's an old age home right and I just didn't really think mm. about the specifics of that and the relation and the theme of death. But that makes perfect sense that she's like surrounded by that too and and kind of repelled by the people that she's caring for right, on some level, right. which like goes with Gracie of just being like afraid of death, you know, not wanting to to deal with her own, you know, like relationship to it. But um and and also just you know, that she's participating in this kind of culture of, you know, leaving people in homes and not considering them people necessarily because sure. they're close to death. Because you were talking about stigma before, obviously, old age is like that period where like people are reminded of death in a way. And that and that's part of how that stigma happens and that, and that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, because there's never a moment. There's There's the one moment where the woman says she doesn't want milk in her tea or cream or whatever. And, and so Amelia goes back and remakes it, but it's not a particularly, it's not the kind of, you you know, you'll have with things with people working in care facilities like this on screen, there's always, there's often a moment of like really seeing each other, you know, and there's not that in this. Yeah. Yeah. Even in that. Yeah. And I was thinking it's partially because it is kind of a shit job. And it reminded me of like, mm-hmm. you know, nickel and dimed Barbara Ehrenreich. It's like where she went and lived, worked at an old age home. Mm. And uh, do, do you know that book? Or it's I've it's, seen it. I can like picture the cover. I think, yeah, it's super famous. But it. basically she took all these really low wage jobs um, as a journalist in a way and reported on the kind of daily experience of doing them. And when she goes to work in like a you know, an old age home, she's excited at first and she really wants to be helpful, 
but she becomes just so overwhelmed by the amount of work mm-hmm. to do that at a certain point she's treating people like just like you know whatever she can do the fastest she's like really expediting her care and not able to really you know give in the way that she'd like to and you know we saw that during covid right of all of of the way that old age homes actually you know operate and and the kind of um you know the mess that that turned into obviously a lot of people died well, and the burning um, yeah. through of healthcare and care workers, uh, the suicides, yeah, the yeah. leaving the field, like, yeah, I mean, I, the, the nurse who was responsible for me staying alive, who, when my parents had made the decision to unplug me, went back to his garage at night, l- learned that the Illinois Surrogate Act has like, you have to meet certain conditions and I, my case didn't meet those conditions. So he calls the hospital like late at night and I met, I, he came to, to see my first one man show about this experience. Uh, wow. I, th- I was able to, I got a little him. shiver there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I was able to thank him and he's just this like flush cheeked sort of leather skinned, like drinker and smoker who's just, who was just like, I was just doing my job, you know? And that's beautiful in one way, but it's also really telling that these care workers, because my partner is, is, is maddeningly empathetic um, to the point where I was very glad that you had the aside about how sad you were to report that the dog (laughs) <laughs> that she killed the dog. It really is... I always hate that moment in the horse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The dog. <laughs> I know. Well, animals are so like pure and yeah. And so she is very, she has made me so in tune to any portrayal of an animal in any sort of cruel way. Um, but but she, I, I can't imagine her working in, my dad's an oncologist, has to tell people they're going to die on a weekly basis. I can't imagine her in that job because she's too giving of certain parts of herself. And it, and it's like I don't know what the solution is. I don't think it's I don't think we should be having people who are paralyzed by the news they have to give to people. But at the same time, yeah, it is I don't know. It's just something to think about. The fact that so many so many of the most efficient or best doctors or nurses are kind of callous in some way. Yeah. I mean, I just, yeah. I mean, there, yeah, people are quitting in droves too. And like, I mean, I just talking to people in that field, the people that are coming to the hospital now with COVID are usually anti-vaxxers and it's just so Mm -hmm. frustrating. I'm sure Mm -hmm. like to be like, "Ah, you don't have to be here, (laughs) like knowing, you know, and then having to be really empathetic and, and generous with their care. It's just like, it sounds so demoralizing, you know, but um, yeah. And you hear about, yeah, suicide of care workers and it's just, it's like you said, it started out, I think, talking about this. It's just the most essential work you could possibly think of. And mm-hmm. it's not treated as such, you know, it really isn't. And, you know, sometimes there'll be people like clapping for, you know, or sending them pizzas, but like right, they, there needs right. to be like a way more than the such. most performative kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, the th- the lesson I ter- I took from the Babadook in terms of this podcast, the P word, was that I it, it was very self congratulatory. I was like, well, if the point of of fighting fear and fear of death is to talk about it, then I, I'm I'm doing I'm basically doing the Lord's work by doing this show. You know what I mean? So so I I think I don't know I I'm that's that's a kind of thought I need to not uh, embrace too too heartily. But I did want to ask you, what do you think for the next, um, this this month, these next, it's going to be three more episodes for the month of October. I know, I'm pretty sure I'm talking about the movie Annihilation with- Oh, uh, that's great. I love that buddy. movie. Yeah. But, but what do you think as, as sort of our introductory guest to this horror movie series, <laughs> how should I be thinking about these movies to get the most out of, to get the most meaning out of these conversations? I thought your questions were great. And I, and I do think <laughs> you're doing, I mean, I really do think you're doing the Lord's work here in that, like, you know, just allowing a, such an array of people to talk about this from, you know, all kinds of perspectives it just seems, you know, it was cathartic for me. I mean, and I'm sure Good. all your guests, I'm sure all your guests feel that way. Um, but yeah, I would say just going back to where we started, you know, just keep thinking about like the ways that the plots and characters and emotions and moods and tones are kind of mediated, right? They point to things below the surface that, and I, I, you know, I can tell you from your questions, you already were thinking about it that way, but like, you know, just, you know, how do they, how do they express things that can't be said in other contexts, right? How can, how does Mm this sort of, Mm -hmm. what, you know, I liked your thing of like, how does a monster, you know, the hero. I love that as a starting point. Or like, you know, yeah, how, yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> and, and, and what is that questioning about our whole structures of thought? Cause obviously we're, th- we're supposed to think the monster is the evil, but if you turn everything upside down, then what, what is that monster as hero questioning or, or making us question and this kind of thing. So I love, I, I'm going to start that my next movie with that question. Why is the monster there? I mean, I kind of do that anyway, but I haven't been putting it that explicitly. So yeah. Like and you just said your next movie. So you just committed to a movie instead of a book. Oh, in terms of, oh, making a movie. Oh, I had a great, my friend said I should actually do this. I have a great idea for a horror film. Um, and I'm just going to spill it because I'll never actually do it. I don't know how to write a movie. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Gender reveal. That's the title. Because all of these gender reveals are. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, wait, is there anything else to it that's surprising that I don't know about? Or is it just well, taking gender just reveal wanna, parties like, to the end? Start with the degree. premise that, you know, have you been following? There's all these gender reveal parties yeah. have started like these huge wildfires and like yeah. natural disasters. <laughs> Blowing so people's just, limbs. I mean, off. I don't know where yeah. I'm going from there. It just came to me yesterday, but like just having that be this the scenario of like having it take place at a, at a gender reveal party and <laughs> go from there. <laughs> is the show thank you so much for listening to this is your slasher life i've been your host no i hate when people do that i hate when people say i've been it's like you still are i am your host dave marr 
follow Joe Isaacson on Twitter and check out her events and her book and her journal, Blind Field. Follow my stuff. Join the Patreon. All those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And until next week, remember, you are a mist. Only human. And human beings, they do miracles.